the readings from the second Sunday of Advent all stand really kind of on their own and they all get mixed together. They're all sending some of the same messages in a particular way of speaking it. And I think they warrant a comment. All three of them warrant a comment this morning. So we'll look first at the first reading from the book of the prophet Isaiah for chapter 40, beginning with the first verse. All of you remember from your Sunday school classes and your Bible classes that the book of Isaiah, what appears in the, uh, in the Bible as the book of Isaiah, is really written by three different authors. Chapter 1 through 39 is written by what the experts called first Isaiah. 40 through 55 is written by a separate author, and that's second Isaiah. And 55 to the very end of the, of the book of Isaiah is written by a different author. They call him third Isaiah. And the first uh, Isaiah, first Isaiah, is the one from chapter 1 through 39, takes place when uh, uh, God is pretty upset with the Jewish people. They've been messing up. They have gone their own way. They have broken the covenant. They have moved away from God. And God's just not very pleased with it and keeps saying, you know, turn around, turn around. Judgment's coming. Judgment's coming. And sure enough, judgment does come. And what happens at the end of that chap chapter 39 is that the Assyrians come from the north, and they invade the northern kingdom of Israel, and they uh, defeat the northern kingdom of Israel. Remember from your Sunday school classes, there were two kingdoms, the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom. The first one, the Assyrians come, defeat them, send everybody into exile. All the leaders, all the smart people, all the business people, they're, right, they're all sent into exile. Any person with power, they're sent into exile. Some of them become refugees in the southern kingdom. A hundred years later, the Babylonians come along, and the Babylonians attack the southern kingdom, and they destroy the southern kingdom, and they do to them, to the southern kingdom, exactly what the Assyrians did to the northern kingdom, and they send them all into exile, and they cast them away to a foreign land. They send them somewhere else to deal with life, away from there, so that they won't be any more problem for the Babylonians. Now, very few of us have ever lived in exile, but Walter Brueggemann, one time when I was teaching one class on this particular passage, mentioned words that have always stuck with me, and he said that, metaphorically speaking, exile is the loss of the known world. Think about that. Exile is the loss of the known world. And if you're willing to accept Brueggemann's suggestion, then you and I know something about exile. All of us have experienced the loss of a known world. Somewhere along the line, that which was prescribed, or at least you thought was prescribed by you, was lost. I'm hoping this lesson is going to be read uh, over there in L.A. Because whatever was their known world has disappeared. Those houses have burned down. And you can imagine what they're going through. Oh, my God. Everything that I have known is gone. I hope they're reading it in Puerto Rico. I hope they're reading it in the U.S. Virgin Islands. I hope they're reading it in the British Virgin Islands, who from the time whenever it was in September, the, the known world that they knew has disappeared. It is the loss of the, new world, of the known world. So you can begin to understand that the prophet, when he speaks at the very beginning of chapter 14, offers words that are powerful words to anybody, anybody, who has ever lost the known world. And the words that come from God... Through the voice of the prophet are these. Comfort, comfort my people, says the Lord. Can you imagine the power of those words? Now, comfort, we normally think of comfort as something at ease. When you go to the uh, furniture store, you want to buy a comfortable couch. If you don't want to buy a comfortable couch, you're going to buy a comfortable chair. 
But the original meaning of comfort is this. Comfort means strength together, literally. Strength together. And it's almost like God, through the prophet, is saying to the people who are in exile, the people who have lost their own world, you and I together are going to be strong. You and I together can go through every issue in our life. You and I together can live through whatever it is that has become the loss of the known world. Powerful, powerful words. You and I, we can be strong together. I've said this to you uh, one time. If I've said it one time to you, I've said it 150 times over the last 50 year, over the last 23 years. And I tell you this, that what God offers us is maximum support, but minimum protection. God does not offer protection for us. God offers us support. God promises to be with us through the thick, of, the thick parts of life. God promises to be with us through the joyous parts of life. God promises to be with us. That's all God promises with us. And today he says to the people in exile, the people who have lost their own world, and he says to all of them, with strength you and I can stand together, and you and I can level the waste places of life. We can make the high mountains low, we can make the valleys rise up. We can create a brand new road so that the glory of the Lord can be understood and heard by everybody. I don't know about you, but I love this passage. One time when I was interviewed by a group of seminarians here from Virginia Seminary, uh, they asked me a whole pile of questions, and the very last question was this. Which passage of Scripture right now is the most important, the one that you think is most important, the one that guides you in your life. And without thinking, I said, Isaiah 40, first verse. Comfort, comfort my people, says the Lord of hosts. And together we can lower the mountains, and together we can raise up the valleys, and together we can make a new way for the Lord. And then Isaiah reminds us that we don't have forever to accept that word. And he reminds us by saying, everyone is like the grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord shall stand forever. It's a reminder that we only have today, don't you think? It's a reminder and leads us to really the commentary on Second Peter that we are called to act today, to get on with it today. Second Peter, from your Bible study classes, you remember, was the last book written uh, that it got incorporated in the Bible. It just barely sneaked in when they created the canon of the Bible. There was a lot of discussion about sec whether Second Peter should be included, but fortunately, they included Second Peter in the Bible. Now, it says at the very beginning of that epistle that Simon Peter wrote it. Simon Peter did not write it. This letter is written... 120 years after uh, Jesus' death and resurrection. Simon Peter is long gone, but somebody who was a friend or a disciple of Simon Peter decided to write this particular epistle. And what he's dealing with is what you and I deal with on an every Sunday basis. They were dealing with the fact that they had been promised that Jesus was coming back, and Jesus was coming back right now. There's no delay. Get ready. Get ready because Jesus is coming back. And so for a long time, people are going, well, let's get ready. Let's get ready because Jesus is coming back. Let's get ready because Jesus is coming back. By 120, everybody's going, well, I don't think Jesus is going to come back any day now. Kind of like you and me. Do you worry about when Jesus is coming back? 
We say it every Sunday. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. And so we say it every, every Sunday. And 2 Peter is a letter written to the people who are trying to figure out how to live their lives when that second coming hasn't arrived. I think 2 Peter is written for people like you and for me. 2 Peter is saying to all of us, don't take today as a day of delay. Take today as a sign of God's grace. This is the day that you have. This is what God has given you. And make something of it. Make it a good day. Don't just wait around. Don't just go mopping around. Don't go wasting time. Don't go frittering away your day. Do something with your day today. Love your day today. Leave it in a way that expresses the expectation that the, the experience of God will happen over and over and over again. Every time that we say, Christ will come again, I'll tell you this, and I offer for your consideration, I think Christ comes every day. I think we see Jesus every day. I wake up every morning expecting to see Jesus every day, to experience the power of God every day. Christ will come again today. And that's the invitation that we receive from 2 Peter's, don't waste today, use today. If you want to tell somebody that you love them, don't wait till tomorrow, do it today. If you want to forgive somebody, don't wait till tomorrow, do it today. If you want to be generous, don't wait until tomorrow, do it today. Do those things today and remember, and remember that the kingdom of God that is coming is the one, for, the one for which we pray every Sunday and for most of us every day when we say the Lord's Prayer and we say, Thy kingdom come. Remember this, do you think that in the kingdom of God there's poverty there? No, there's no poverty in the kingdom of God, then there can't be any here. And that's what we're called to work for. You think there's any racism in the kingdom of God? No. There can't be any here either. So we have to work for it. You think there's any sexism in the kingdom of God? No. There can't be any here, and we're called to work for it today. You think there's any xenophobia in the kingdom of God? No. Neither should there be any here, and we're called to work against that every day. You think there's homophobia in the kingdom of God? I don't think so. All those isms don't exist in the kingdom of God. And what Peter is saying is this. You have today. Use today. You want to love today. Practice it today. Love today. Forgive today. Be generous today. And then we come to John the Baptist. He appears every second Sunday of Advent. Rain or shine, here comes John the Baptist on the second Sunday of Advent. We've heard him every year the second Sunday of Advent. There are enough of you who are about of my vintage to remember the Johnny Carson show. Some of you who are not of my vintage 
Uh, don't remember the Johnny Carson, so you can YouTube one of those shows somewhere along the line, and you'll know what I'm talking about. But for those of you who are my vintage, you remember the Johnny Carson show, and his sidekick, Ed McMahon, would come out onto the stage, and he would say, here's Johnny. And sure enough, Johnny Carson then went waddle out, and it would start the whole show, and everybody would go berserk. Well, I always feel like second Sunday of Advent, I should say to every congregation where I have served, here's Johnny, because he's coming whether we like it or not. And he's saying the same thing every, every time that he shows up. He says the, exactly the same thing. And he says, repent of your sins. Prepare yourself for the birth of Christ. Prepare for yourself for the rebirth of hope in your heart, which is what December the 25th is all about. So I raise the question for you. Do you need a Savior? Do you think you need a Savior? If you don't need a Savior, nothing's going to happen on December 25th. If you think you need a Savior, then John the Baptist is saying, well, examine your life. Repentance is all about examining your life. It's all about looking at the way that you think and deciding that you need to change something about it. That's all it is. And if you're hoping for the rebirth of hope, the birth of Christ, once more in your hearts, John the Baptist is here every second Sunday of Advent saying, think about it. See what needs to change in your life. See what sinful condition in the language of the church, the thing that separates you from God that won't allow for the birth of Christ to be born in your hearts again. And you have to acknowledge, first of all, that you need a Savior. If you don't need a Savior, nothing's going to happen. I don't know which sins you wrestle with most commonly, but I can tell you a couple of the ones that I wrestle with very frequently. I think the two of them are presumption and despair. Presumption, of course, leads to arrogance and contempt. As I was preparing for the sermon, I, uh, my wife and I were having a cup of coffee over breakfast one day, and I said to Lou, Lou, uh, tell me a couple of garden variety things about arrogance. And he said, well, let's just examine the last couple of days of your life. <laughs> arrogance is when you think that the rules don't apply to you. And if you don't think that the rules apply to you, you've become an arrogant person. You have become presumptuous. We had a seminarian here a while back who was a very, so there's a very fine line, I told him, I said, you know, there's a very fine line between self-confidence and arrogance. And I said to him, and I'm not sure on which side of the line you are. Self-confidence is not bad. Arrogance, problematic. Arrogance, arrogance leads all of us into trouble. And the language of arrogance, you and I know the language of arrogance. It goes like this. I know what is best for you. Don't worry about it. I'll fix it. I know more about this than you do. I know how to do it better than you can do it. I'm the only one who can do it. I'm the only one who can fix it. I'm the only one who can do whatever it is. That's the language of arrogance. And the language of arrogance, I think, tends to lead to revolutionary people. I just finished reading a couple of months ago, about a month or so ago, the book, A Gentleman in Moscow. I don't know if you've had a chance to read that book, A Gentleman in Moscow. Wonderful, wonderful novel. If you haven't read it, read it. It's a great read, uh, and you won't be wasting your time. 
Anyway, in this particular novel, the guy who's uh, caught in Moscow mentions Vladimir Mayarovsky, who was the poet of the Russian Revolution. And the poet of the Russian Revolution in 1917, Mayarovsky wrote poems over and over and over about how the Russian Revolution was going to cleanse the world. It was going to be like the, the, uh, the second flood that was going to cleanse the world and everything was going to be wonderful in the world after that. And then 10 years later, 10 years later, he commits suicide. And his last line of his last poem goes like this. Love's boat has smashed against the daily grind and he commits suicide. Arrogance, I think, leads to people thinking that they know the best, and they're the only ones who know the best. And that is presumption. That's Prometheus. The second sin with which we all wrestle, because if you're presumptuous and you can't get things done and things don't work out, you want it to work out, despair is the next sin. Despair is thinking that things can't change. Despair is thinking that nothing will happen that, uh, that you think needs to happen. The language of despair is something like this. I will never be able to love again. I will never be able to get over it. I will never be able to... You fill in the blanks for yourself. You know that language. You and I have heard that language, and it is the language of despair. I will never fill in the blank. And when our hearts are filled with despair, there is no room for the need of a Savior. There is no room for the birth of Christ. Presumption and despair. I think are the twin sins. They're my twin sins. Let me offer that for your consideration. You may think of some other ones, but they are strong, and they draw us away from the law of God. And so today we have great lessons from Isaiah. Comfort, comfort my people. In strength together we can do whatever it is, and we can lower the mountains, and we can raise the valley, and the glory of the Lord will be seen by everyone. And Second Peter says, don't waste today. Don't waste today. Use today. Make it a good day. Make sure that you know that you're anticipating something and act today. If you need to love, love today. If you need to forgive, forgive today. If you need to be generous, be generous today. And then John the Baptist comes along and he tells to all of us, the need for the Savior is what will open your heart to birth of Christ once more on December the 25th. And in order to be ready, examine yourself. What keeps you from the need of a Savior? Is it presumption? Is it despair? Repent. Think about it. Turn around. And you'll be ready for the birth of Christ on December the 25th, the rebirth of hope once more in our lives. Amen.